Hello and welcome to AUSU Open Mic, the podcast for undergraduate Athabasca University students brought to you by AUSU, represents all undergraduates here at Athabasca University. Last month, Dr. Kara Ross, a psychology professor here at Athabasca, presented a talk on getting into undergraduate research and then leveraging that into graduate school and beyond. Now, her examples are all focused on psychology or counseling, but there's something here for all students interested in going to research to learn from. Enjoy. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm going to apologize right away. It's the end of the day and I've got an excited dog. So if she starts barking, I am so sorry. Um, I'm also going to say that this is a slightly different talk. Um, I'm not just going to be talking about research. Uh, like in the introduction, I'm also going to be talking about uh, the honors like experience and then talk about some opportunities in my lab and how you can go about uh, getting that honors like experience here at Athabasca. So to begin with, um, I feel like I'm probably kind of preaching to the choir with this a bit, but I did want to start off and make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of like, why on earth would you want to get undergraduate research experience? And there's a couple of big reasons I can think of for why this is a worthwhile thing to do. Um, first and foremost, this is an opportunity to obtain hands-on research experience. And I know that that can sound a bit weird because at this point, a lot of you guys have probably been APA formatted to death. You guys have probably done a lot of literature reviews. Um, you've probably done small research projects in your courses. And while it's all well and good and good theoretical experience, um, the uh, research experience, research activities in the real world are very different from what you've probably experienced in courses thus far. Uh, there is no assignment, there is no metric. Um, you're relying on your own experience to come up with research questions. You're making a lot of decisions about how you're going to go about and do these things. All of those decisions are going to have implications for how you interpret your data, the kind of data that you get. And the best way to learn um, how all of those decisions are made and how they're going to impact your work is by doing research. Um, over and above that, even if you have zero intention of ever being a researcher going forward, having hands-on research experience is an awesome way to become a better researcher consumer. So if one day you are a counselor, you are working with a patient who has a particular need and you need to go into the literature and get a better sense of what is the best evidence-based approach for helping this client, um, having research experience is going to help you better understand what's going on in the literature. It's going to let you uh, read between the lines, um, get a sense of like, are the researchers really interpreting their data appropriately? Um, how can it be generalized? What are the limits of these findings? And that will help you interpret that and use that research better going forward. Now, I imagine that a lot of you are here for the second reason, that people usually want undergraduate research experience to get into graduate programs. It's a requirement for a lot of the psychology programs. Um, so undergraduate research is going to let you, first of all, discern your professional goals. Graduate school is a long time. It's up to two to six years, depending on what you want to do. And that's a long time to be doing something if you don't like it. So this is an opportunity at the undergraduate level before you do all of that to um, figure out if you actually like doing research and if you schools you apply to. But if you do like doing research, it'll also determine like what kind of programs you're going to look at. What are you looking for in a supervisor? What sort of opportunities are you looking for? Excuse me, things like that. Um, undergraduate research is also a great way to develop your resume and your CV. So not only do you have on your transcript that you completed a research course, but it's also an opportunity to get um, jobs experience. So you can list that you have, you've done research activities. 
I have colleagues in clinical psychology programs who say very clearly that they are looking for someone who was a research project coordinator, because that's the level of work and experience that they're looking for in their graduate students. Um, it's also an opportunity for you to complete your own project and get to present your uh, uh, work at, excuse me, at conferences, um, and hopefully even get an authorship uh, publication as well, which is gold when you're applying for graduate school. And last but not least, it's an opportunity for you to get your letters of support. So undergraduate research program uh, experiences are usually long-term. Uh, you're working with someone from between eight months to a year, usually meeting with them once a week, at least uh, doing a lot of writing, training together. By the end of that experience, you are going to have an academic mentor who can write you a brilliant letter of support full of all of these concrete examples about why you are amazing and why that graduate program would be absolutely foolish not to take you on. So those are all the reasons, and again, kind of preaching to the choir, for why you should consider getting undergraduate research experience, whether you're choosing to go into graduate school or not. Now, in terms of what is the best way to go about doing that, especially at Athabascan University, I mean, at a typical, um, most other universities, you would find a supervisor, get into an honors program, and hey, presto, you've got your research experience. Um, unfortunately, Athabascan University, the psychology program does not have an honors degree. Although I will say that if enough students reach out to the powers that be and uh, let them know that this is an important gap that needs to be addressed, we might be able to fix that. So just throwing that out there, if that's something that you guys are interested in. Um, but even though we don't have an honors program, I have been able to pull together an honors-like experience that is recognized by um, many most graduate programs. So whether you're working with me or whether you're working with someone else, uh, this is how I recommend you go about getting that research experience here at Athabasca. Uh, so first and foremost, I recommend that you plan for somewhere between eight months to a year of work with an academic mentor or supervisor. Um, that's just how much time it's been, minimum amount of time it's needed to do a basic research project. Now, uh, Psychology 418, and I'm also the coordinator for Psychology 418, uh, is the typical, it's the closest that we have to an honors researchy course here at Athabasca. Um, that is the standard four to six month course uh, where you write, do a literature review and write up a summary paper. I would recommend you should register in this, but aim to do this towards the middle, towards the end of your year of research. This is what you would do after you've finished your data collection analysis and you're getting ready to write up your uh, findings. And the rest of the time, what I do and what I recommend is that you pull together a number of research assistantships. So preferably something that is paid. <laughs> I definitely want my students to be paid if at all possible, either through research assistantships on grants or summer studentships or things like that. Um, but at this point, any research job, whether volunteer or paid, is going to be what you need to do to get into graduate school, either a research assistantship or a project coordinator position. I also recommend that students work on existing or ongoing projects with their supervisor rather than coming up with a project on their own. And that's just because, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult to come up with a research question that's viable, that's going to get published and get you abstract presentations. Senior researchers struggle with this sometimes. It's, we definitely do not expect baby researchers, like most of the people here, I imagine, to be able to do that. Um, other advantages too is that this is probably work that your supervisor would have been wanting to do anyway, so it's probably pretty viable. Um, it also means that there's, 
it's probably set up and ready to go. A year isn't a lot of time in the research world. So rather than spending time designing something and doing ethics applications and things like that, it's better to get folded into a project that's already ongoing, if at all possible with existing data is even better. And all of this is because at the end of your eight months to a year, the goal, in addition to getting your research experience, is to have produced something that you can present at a conference, preferably a national or an international conference, um, and something that will get you an authorship on a published publication, preferably a first or a second authorship, but at this phase, any authorship will work for you at all. And it does take about a year to go from beginning analysis through to having a finalized manuscript, if not longer. So you do need this period of time. Now this takes a lot of time to arrange. Uh, you have to find someone who has the uh, capacity to take on a student. They have to have a sense of what they've got coming down the pipelines. What are the projects they have that's appropriate for an undergraduate project? Um, there are deadlines to be considered for summer studentships, for abstracts and things like that. So because of this, I highly recommend if you can to plan ahead six to 12 months before you start your year. Uh, your last year, just to make sure that all of this is lined up and planned and set to go uh, before you get towards the end of your degree. Okay, so that's ideally what your research experience should look like, and we can definitely build that at Athabasca University. I've done that myself. How do you go about doing this? So before I jump into that, I just wanted to point out there's a bit of a difference between how Site 418 is currently designed and how it's probably going to be moving when I have the time to revise it. Currently, technically speaking, you do not need to have a supervisor before you approach me to register in Site 418. And technically, you can come up with your own project um, without having consulted with a supervisor. Um, if you choose to go with that route, I will totally support you. I will help you find a supervisor. We'll get you going with that. But I highly, highly, highly recommend that you take the approach that I just described on the last slide and that you find a supervisor and you find a project that's already started with that supervisor. And that's what you use to get into Psychology 418. I can guarantee that you will have a much more productive research experience and you'll probably much be much more competitive for graduate school uh, by the time you come through this. So how do you go about find someone you can do that with? Um, I recommend that you start by looking at the faculty or tutor profiles on the FHSS website, for example. Uh, you can also think about people that you have worked with in courses that you liked or were doing work that you were interested in. You can look at our peer profiles on our Athabasca website where there's a lot of the summaries of our research activities. And as you're trolling through files, uh, first and foremost, think about whether or not they're doing work that interests you. Bearing in mind that you're not going to be doing this for the rest of your life, but a year can be a long time. So ideally something that you could do for a year that you'd be interested in doing literature reviews and all that on. The other thing I recommend you look at is a possible supervisors research productivity. Um, have they published recently? Do they publish regularly? Same thing, do they attend conferences regularly? Have they done so recently? And that's a good thing to take a look at because uh, if they are not very good at doing that for themselves or not as consistent with doing that for themselves, they may not be as able to help you go on and do that and get your CV built for your uh, graduate school application. So um, look for someone who's got a, a pretty consistent and solid research productivity track record. 
And then over and above that, if they're senior enough to have had uh, students, do they have a good mentorship record? Uh, do they publish with their students? Do their students go on to do interesting things? And don't be afraid to reach out and talk to either current or past students and ask them about the supervisor as well. Uh, they're usually a good source of information <laughs> on that. So I recommend that you go through and look at all the faculty profiles and come up with a list of psychology faculty or tutors who you would be interested in working with. And once you've done that, I recommend that you reach out and email them. And I know that that can be thoroughly intimidating, but I can guarantee that if you do the legwork and start developing these relationships, it will pay off dividends um, down the road. Flattery also goes a long way. So don't be afraid to tell them why you're interested in their work, why you want to work with them, but also be very clear about your timelines, your goals, your expectations. I want a publication, preferably I would like to have a, a conference abstract out of this and um, ask if they'd be willing to meet with you and discuss opportunities. Ideally, someone would be like, cool, let's do this and set up a meeting. But if they say no, please don't be discouraged. There's a, a lot of reasons for why someone might not be willing to take on students. They could have already been maxed out. Uh, they could be going on leave. They might've backburnered their research for whatever reason. So that's why it's good to give yourself a lot of time and also to make sure that you've got a list of possibilities so that you can, um, you have enough time to find someone to work with. Okay, that was a very uh, quick and dirty introduction to how is best probably to do research at an undergraduate level at Athabasca University. You can ask me questions about that. Uh, I'm going to shift a little bit and talk more about my work and opportunities there as well. Um, so my background, is, as I said earlier, is in health psychology. That is where the health sciences and the psychological sciences collide. It is a very big, difficult to define, messy field. But there's a couple of different areas of research in health psychology. So one of the first areas of uh, work that happens is exploring how your mental states, psychosocial, affective, cognitive, how all of those things can get under your skin and into your body to affect how your body works and also risk for future disease and um, how the disease progresses and resolves. So this can include, for example, um, looking at how depression affects your blood pressure and your risk for cardiovascular disease, how your relationships affect how your immune system works, whether being stressed means you're more likely to catch a cold and how much mucus you produce when you do finally get sick, um, your personality and links with cancer and cancer recovery, this is a huge, area of research. There's also an area of uh, work that looks at health behaviors. So smoking, nutrition, exercise, risky behaviors like unprotected sex, vaccinations. Um, and there's a large group of people here who examine, okay, why do people do what they do? Uh, how can we nudge them towards the better behaviors? How can we get them away from the less good behaviors? And uh, how can we do this at a at a larger level to affect uh, health and well-being through behavior. And then the last broad area is kind of the opposite of the first. So it's looking at the psychological impacts of certain disease states. So one of the founding findings uh, that in health psychology was the observation that people who have had major cardiovascular surgery, heart surgery, they were much more likely to develop depression, clinical depression compared to other patient populations. And why is that? Like, that's weird. It's also examining like if you've been diagnosed with cancer, Parkinson's, any of these other diseases, what are the psychological impacts of those diagnoses? How do you cope with that? How do you cope with changes? How does this impact your family and your relationships? 
all of those things fall under this category, excuse me, as well. Now, my work tends to fall into this. So I am very focused on understanding how our psychosocial traits and all that gets underneath the skin to affect our physiology and our health and well-being. To make health psychology even more fun, it also runs the gamut between research and clinical application. So uh, there is work that does the basic research side of things. These are people that are coming up with the research questions. They're generating the data. They're creating the theory. Um, trying to understand the phenomenon in this field. Somewhere in the middle are the people that are taking that data and they're combing it out and how do we apply this so that we can use it in policy or design interventions to protect health and well-being, all the way through to stuff towards the end where you might not be doing much research at all, um, maybe a clinical health psychologist where you're working with specific patient populations on clinical issues, working in hospitals and things like that. Right off the bat, I will say that I am not a clinician, um, and most of my work focuses on more basic and theoretical research. So specifically, um, where do I fit into this? So like I said, I, am, I focus more on how psychosocial aspects can get under the skin to affect health and well-being. The sorts of things that I look at, I'm really interested in relationship quality, conflict and support, for better or for worse, how that can affect our health and our well-being. I'll be talking a bit about this more in the research portion of things. I also look more broadly at how distress, um, adverse childhood experiences, um, poor affective states like depression, anxiety, how that might be affecting health and well-being. And I also have a chunk of work that's looking at how sources of health disparities like socioeconomic status and race, ethnicity, how those two things might be coming together to affect health and well-being. In terms of outcomes, I have a very strong focus on physiological outcomes. So I've done work looking at blood pressure and other cardiometabolic indicators. I've done work looking at uh, hormones like the stress hormone cortisol. Um, but my heart is really in the immune system. I, I'm really interested in how these psychosocial uh, factors affect how our immune system works and our inflammatory activity. Uh, most of my work tends to focus on more the maternal child area. So I do a lot of work that looks at pregnancy, uh, risk for pregnancy outcomes, including things like preterm birth or being born too early, and how this affects uh, maternal and child health into the postpartum period and uh, infancy and early childhood. And uh, all of this work combined recently got me thinking about, okay, how does research work for people on the front line, for community agencies that are serving uh, vulnerable um, women and children and their families. So I've also started working with some um, nonprofits and some training platforms that are focused on these populations. And then to make it all the more fun, I also have a body of work that looks at um, health psychology in Canada. What do we do in Canada? How are we connected? How can we be build a better community so that we can better train, collaborate and advocate for ourselves? So in a nutshell, that sounds nuts, but that is the big picture of everything that I do. So what have my students been doing? Um, so I've been very fortunate and many of my students have gone on to publish after they have come to work with me, which is amazing. And you can see some examples of the work that they have done here. And they've also been very successful at presenting their work at a number of conferences. And I have to admit, I, I wanted to tell you about all of their work because I'm very pleased and proud of all of the work that they do. Um, but I decided that I wanted to sing the praises of my um, current student, uh, Cheryl Trask. 
So I'm switching into the research side of the presentation here so I can talk about the work that Cheryl has been doing. So background for this, um, relationships are a very, very, very powerful predictor of health and well-being for better and for worse. And it's not a surprise, humans are social creatures. So access to and quality of our relationships is going to be very important to us. In terms of relationship quality, um, a lot of people when they think about it assume that relationship quality is unipolar, that our relationships go from good to bad. But there's actually evidence that it's a bipolar construct, that we our relationships are high to low in positive aspects and high to low in negative aspects. And these two um, both form relationship quality. And they're associated with health the way that you would expect generally. So higher positive relationships tend to be associated with better health outcomes and higher negative relationships tend to be associated with worse health outcomes. Over and above that though, you can look at these two poles together and when you do, you're able to detect patterns of relationship quality that you wouldn't be able to find by looking at them separately. So if we look at this quadrant here, these are relationships that are high in positive and high in negative aspects. And these are called uh, ambivalent relationships. And they're the most studied in this field and they tend to be associated with worse health outcomes. And the theory goes that it's because these relationships are very unpredictable. You don't know if you're gonna get a hug or a slap from this person at any given time. And that's really distressing and that's gonna have downstream impacts on your health and your well-being. This other quadrant over here, these are relationships that are low in positive and low in negative aspects. And they tend to be called in different relationships. These are relatively less studied than ambivalent, but there is some evidence that if they occur, especially in the context of an important relationship, like a partner relationship, that they are also associated with poor health outcomes. And the theory here is that in the context of an important relationship, having something that is really like almost nothing for better or for worse, there's like nothing going on here, is incredibly distressing. Again, with downstream implications for our health and our well-being. So Cheryl's project uh, was building on some work that I had been um, toiling away at for years. And I had this observation that, um, okay, so why is it that in some studies I'm getting an effect of different relationships, which are, you know, these two that I have here, but in other studies, I'm getting an effect of ambivalent relationships. Like that doesn't make any sense. These are two opposite relationship patterns. Why isn't it consistent? What is going on here? So uh, I completed a systematic review back in 2019, looking at this whole literature and based on that work, I kind of had this crazy idea that it might be a measurement thing. I noticed that studies that tended to find an effective ambivalent relationships, they tended to use measures that were focused on the support context specifically. So they would say, um, when you're thinking about your partner and you need support from your partner, how helpful are they, the positive aspect, and how upsetting are they, which is the negative aspect. Uh, in contrast, studies that were finding an effective indifference tended to use this general or context-free approach. So they just wanted to know overall how supportive is your partner and overall how conflictual is your relationship with your partner as the positive and negative aspects. So um, this is the project that Cheryl ran with. So that was the, our hypothesis that maybe we're picking up on these different patterns um, because of differences in measurement, maybe how we measure it matters. So Cheryl and I, we used data from my uh, COVID social connections and mental health study. And I have a picture of Katie Lowe at the top of the screen here. I hope you can see her um, because she was uh, the project coordinator for this. She was the one who helped me collect all of this data. 
uh, one of my other students and she's since gone on to graduate school at the University of Calgary. Um, but this was the data that we, Cheryl and I decided to use for this project. So we focused on uh, participants who reported being in partner relationships. So we had about 206 Canadian adults and they were recruited uh, towards the beginning of the pandemic. And we followed them up for a six month period, but Cheryl and I focused on the data at study entry for uh, her project. And uh, we asked these individuals to think about their partner and respond to a number of different questions or measures about positive and negative relationship quality. So for the support context, we use the social relationships inventory, which again, in the context of support, how helpful is your partner, how upsetting is your partner, and then for the general context, we used a measure of social overall social support, the social support effectiveness questionnaire. And for conflict, we use the uh, quality of relationships inventory, the conflict subscale. And because this was with the pandemic and I couldn't bring people into the lab to take blood from them, I switched and looked at a mental health outcome. So we looked at anxiety and we considered a whole bunch of sociodemographic and pandemic factors that might be confounding our results. We controlled for those, we used a regression approach. So what did Cheryl find? So first and foremost, Cheryl did find a positive by negative interaction uh, in the social support context, which is in this graph here. So we have anxiety on the y-axis, partner help or the positive aspect is on the x-axis, and the negative aspect or partner upset is here uh, shown by the different lines. So what Cheryl found was that when uh, partner upset was low, there wasn't really an association between partner help and anxiety. But as partner upset increased, this association started to come through. So specifically when partner upset was high, higher partner help was associated with higher anxiety. And if we go back to that little quadrant that I showed you at the beginning, that's consistent with an ambivalent pattern of relationships. They're high and positive and they're high and negative. So that's interesting. For the general context, Cheryl also found um, another interaction between support and conflict. And same thing, anxiety is on the y-axis, but this time uh, partner support is the positive aspect, or positive relationship quality on the x-axis, and uh, partner conflict with the negative aspect is shown by the different lines. And what Cheryl found was that when partner conflict was high, there wasn't really an association between partner support and anxiety, but as partner conflict went down, this additional association came through. So when partner conflict was low, lower partner support was associated with higher anxiety. And again, if we go back to that little quadrant, that's consistent with an indifferent pattern of relationships. So what this suggested is that when we're looking at the same pattern, or sorry, if we're looking at the same sample, same outcome, same time point, thinking about the same person, the only thing that we've changed is how they are, how we're asking them about positive and negative quality in their relationship. The, the pattern that comes through does seem to vary depending on what kind of measurement approach is being used. So consistent with what we thought based on the literature, when we use positive and negative aspects using a support seeking context, you know, when you need support, how helpful or upsetting is this person, an ambivalent pattern was associated with highest anxiety. But when we use the general approach, just overall how supportive, overall how conflictual is this person, an indifferent pattern was associated with higher anxiety. So Cheryl's work suggests very strongly that you know, this has implications for how we explain this and how we develop theory, because up until this point, measurement hadn't been included in how we were explaining this. 
And Cheryl's results very strongly indicate that we really need to think about measurement and how we're framing this when we're developing our theory. So um, as you can see at the bottom, Cheryl was very, very busy and she wrote up all of her results and they are currently under review. So fingers crossed, uh, we get those out and published very, very soon. Okay, I'm switching gears again. So that was an example. I wish I could tell you about all of their work, but um, I'm gonna focus on Cheryl. So that was an example of some of the work that an undergraduate student has done uh, through my lab. I'm gonna shift gears and talk about some research opportunities that are coming down the pipeline with me. Um, I've arranged these from lowest hanging fruit to stuff that's a little bit further. Um, and it is gonna be rapid fire a little bit more. So if you do have any questions, please reach out, let me know, or you can ask me at the end of the talk. Um, so some of the opportunities. Um, I collaborate with a group uh, at UCLA on something called the Healthy Babies Before Birth Cohort. The purpose of the study was to assess the impacts of prenatal mental health on pregnancy and infant outcomes, but there was a ton of information collected. So there's a lot of questions this can be put towards. And um, so this was a sample of about 200 pregnant women recruited from Denver and Los Angeles. They came in early in their pregnancy. We followed them up three times during pregnancy through their labor and delivery. And then they and their infants up to a year after the baby was born. And uh, one of the things that I'm interested in is understanding what normal physiology looks like in the context of pregnancy, because pregnancy physiology is still very much a black box. We don't know a lot about what happens physiologically on a systemic level during pregnancy. Um, so I have some analyses that I'm starting to work on looking at how the stress hormone cortisol, which is a major regulator of pregnancy, how that systematically changes or doesn't from pregnancy to the postpartum period, and what are the factors that predict the shape of those trajectories over time? So that's one thing that I'm working on. I'm also part of the uh, Alberta Pregnancy Outcomes and Nutrition or Apron Study Management Team at the University of Calgary. This is a massive project, it's an old cohort. Uh, it started off looking at the effects of nutrition and maternal mental health on child outcomes. They recruited uh, about 2000 pregnant women and their fathers if they were interested from the Edmonton and Calgary regions. And they've just not stopped. So they started recruiting back in 2008. They followed the woman up uh, two to three times during her pregnancy, through birth, and almost 16 years since. So there is a ton of data about uh, these families in this cohort. Now, I recently uh, got, I recently took some of the banked biospecimens from the pregnancy uh, visits and I assayed them for a number of inflammatory markers. So I'm, I've, I've got a lot of ideas about how to use that, but one of the projects builds on another um, undergraduate project from my lab, uh, looking at inflammatory markers like IL-10 that shut down the immune system and IL-6 that turn on the immune system and looking at their ratio as an indicator of how well the immune system is regulating itself and understanding what that means. Uh, is it associated with, health outcomes in mothers and children, um, you know, is, is there evidence that this is capturing what we think it's capturing? So there's a whole series of questions related to that. But I also have relationship quality, child attachment, like there's a whole bunch of data that we could take a look at here. I briefly mentioned that I'm working on, this is the project that Cheryl is currently my project coordinator for, it's still relatively new. Um, I completed an environmental scan of health psychology faculty a couple years ago with another a student from my lab, Ryan Hogan, and we wanted to get a sense of how many health psychologists were in Canada and what kind of work that they were doing and how integrated they were in a community. And this is the follow-up study. So we are now reaching out to the people that we identified 
and we want them, we want to understand who they are, what their professional backgrounds are, and their sense of health psychology in Canada and their interest in a professional community. So this is still very much ongoing. Cheryl is still working on this. Uh, we are working on recruiting uh, faculty and trainees to this. We've got about 75 people thus far, hoping to get over at least 100, more is better. And the sky's the limit here once we get our data done. So we're gonna be doing qualitative work, looking at their self-open-ended responses to um, what is Canadian health psychology, what is Canadian health psychology community, what they're looking for, but also just describing the sample and looking at how their sociodemographic and their professional backgrounds might be influencing their interest in a Canadian health psychology community. Very rapid fire. Um, I am also a co-PI on this training platform called Alliance Against Violence and Adversity or AVA. And the purpose of this platform is to train the next generation of researchers who will be focusing on gendered violence and specifically in a way that is going to allow them to break down barriers between academia and community so that there can be more knowledge sharing there. There are a number of training modules and opportunities through AVA. So if you're interested, take a look. There's opportunities there. Um, there's the curriculum portion, AVA online, and there's also mentorship and internship opportunities. I'm in charge of designing AVA online, and we're going to be launching that syllabus at the end of January. But once we do that, that means that we have to do the research portion of it. So we actually have to document what we did, and we have to start collecting data to evaluate whether or not AVA online is doing what we hope it's doing, the students and our other partners like it. So that's another project. And then last but not least is this, I know this seems like left field, this nonprofit data management. And this is coming out of um, I started reaching out to community agencies and it's like, hey, I do research, let's collaborate. What kind of questions do you guys have about you know, your, your client populations? And they said, well, that's cool. We can't even collect our own data. So yeah, we can't really do research right now. And I decided that that was a problem, a ridiculous problem. So I have a grant going on where I'm working with a number of community agencies in the Calgary area. And we are working to design a what we're calling a common data management system that they could use uh, that would be hosted on Athabasca's research infrastructure. So they could use it for low to no cost. Uh, so we're working with Elizabeth House, Emma House, and High Banks, all of which serve pregnant women or women with young children who are homeless or at high risk of becoming homeless, and uh, Community Lambda, who provide longer term housing to adults with chronic mental health, often schizophrenia. And we're also working with PolicyWise. It's another nonprofit agency that's focused on supporting data and um, uh, data capacity within the nonprofit sector. So this is also in process. We got our funding back in September. We are in the middle of designing the system. We're expecting this to go until the end of August. But again, once we finish doing that, there, we're gonna have to do the research chunk of it. So we're going to be doing uh, interviews with our partners and getting a sense of, you know, how did we do? What do you think of this? What are our future directions? How can we improve? That's gonna be coming down the pipeline too. Okay, that was really, really rapid fire. And I'm probably talking way faster than I expected to when I practiced this. A bit of a bucket, I'm almost done. <laughs> Don't worry, I saw you come back on. Um, a bit of a bucket of cold water, especially when it comes. I've, I've shown you all of these amazing opportunities. I hope that some of you are excited and interested in working with me on some of these things. Just a heads up, cold bucket of water, is that um, my capacity, I can supervise up to two to three students at any given time. 
And that's just because mentoring undergraduate students, mentoring any student is a very intensive process. I want to make sure that you guys are getting a good mentorship experience and anything above two or three students means that that starts to get compromised. Um, so again, it is very important that you reach out and plan and start ahead. It's probably the same for any other psychology faculty tutors, um, psychology faculty and tutors at Athabasca University. Um, so what I will say again, what, is, what I said at the beginning is that if you guys really think that this is an important part of your education or training experience at AU, if you want more opportunities to do this and more faculty and tutors who can support you in this, I really, really, really strongly um, advise, ask you guys to reach out to the powers and be and let them know because that's when we'll start being able to um, get more resources so that we can support you through these activities. So to conclude, uh, we do have undergraduate research opportunities at Athabasca. They might not be an honors program, but we are very able to pull together an honors equivalent experience that's recognized by most a lot of graduate programs. Um, I keep saying this, but please, please, please do plan ahead as much as possible. Um, it's never too soon to contact possible supervisors. It's never too soon to start doing research work or volunteering if that's what you're interested in doing. And yeah, let me know if you're interested, either in my work or if you want to collaborate with someone else, you know, contact me anytime. I'm more than happy to support you guys and answer any questions.